ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the first panel session at the venue of the ASU Source Report Student Center. First and foremost, please be reminded that in the very unlikely case of fire, there are two fire exit doors on the right, one on the left. So if you hear the fire alarm, please kindly make your way to the fire exit doors. The focus of this panel is on the topic of new urbanization, which is of course a topic which is at the forefront of the Chinese government agenda. Today, we're very, we're very honored to have four top speakers with us, so please now join me in welcoming each and every one of them. First, we have School Professor of Economic Geography at the ASC, Professor Vernon Henderson. Next, we have Senior Research Fellow at the Development Research Center of the State Council in China, Professor Li Shantong. Vice Provost for International Studies at the UCLA, Professor Cindy Fan. And finally, I'll hand the stage over to the moderator of this panel, Director of the Asia Research Center at LSE, Professor Arthur Hussein. Right, shall we start? Um, so, you already been introduced to the uh, very distinguished speakers, so I will not introduce them. And so, the topic for today is urbanization in China. I mean, just as China's growth, urbanization in China is also exceptional, and there is no parallel in history. It is vast in scope, rapid in speed, and probably faced with much tighter environmental constraints than faced by previous urbanization. For example, just to give an idea, between 1982 and 2010, the growth in urban population every year in China is around 15 to 16 million. That's about the size of the city at Shanghai every year. Second in speed is anybody who's been to China, that is skyscrapers and buildings and roads rise in practically no time. So if you go a year later, you cannot recognize the landscape. So I think with this, uh, the three speakers will each speak for 20 minutes. 15 minutes, okay. And, and then we will open the discussion to the floor. So I'll start first with Cindy Fan, who is well known for people who studied China. I think I'm going to use the podium. I was told that somebody would help me uh, upload my uh, PowerPoint up there. Yeah. Yeah, well, thank you very much. And uh, um, I could speak for two hours, but I was told that we could only speak for 15 minutes. So. Okay. Um, it's a privilege to be here, and I'm really, really impressed with the organization of the conference. I um, am uh, copying from the student organizers uh, everything that they've done. I'm going to bring back my experience to UCLA to my students, and I'm going to tell them, look what these students at LSE have done. You will have to do the same. You will have to pamper me and take me from one place to another and make sure that I'm well-fed and everything, which you all have done, so thank you very much. Um, okay. Should I go forward like this? Okay. So, this is not new to you, that China's level of urbanization has increased very rapidly, that it has surpassed the mark 50%. A few years ago, and it's now around 53, 54 percent. 
from 10% only about 60 some years ago, so very fast. But of the urban population, one third of them do not have urban hukou. And we're talking about 240 million people, which is about 17% of China's population. I'm going to show you three maps, because I'm a geographer by training, so I love maps. But these maps also tell a story, because this is a 1990 map that shows the uh, major interprovincial migration floats, uh, mostly from inland areas to coastal areas. Ten years later, those arrows increased in size, and Guangdong was, at that time, in 2000, the major magnet of migration. Uh, so was Shanghai, Zhejiang, and Beijing, and Tianjin. Ten years later, 2010, the arrows became even bigger, and the, um, the focused streams of migration from areas like Sichuan and um, other you know, poorer provinces to places like Guangdong became even more dramatic. And also Zhejiang and Jiangsu and other coastal areas. But what these maps don't show you, or let me put it this way, what, what these, these maps might mislead you is that this is, there's an arrow, so there's an origin and there's a destination which is what the literature of migration tends to, um, tend to convey, is that migration is from one place to another. But what I wanted to say in my work and argue is that migration perhaps should be seen more as an interactive, interactive and iterative activity, and that migration involves multiple sites and communities, not just an origin and a destination. So I want to uh, maybe draw attention to three facets of this argument. First is that translocality increasingly becomes um, a dominant, a more dominant human activity. And uh, by that, what I mean is that increasingly we are identified with not just one place or one community, but more than one location. Um, and translocal geography um, focus on both mobility and place, both international and internal. So there's really no need for an artificial division between the work on international migration and the work on internal migration. And also focusing on both uh, those who move and those who don't. Um, and as a result, families may be separated by distance. And so this poses a challenge to what we mean by family. The second facet is that the left behind is as important as those that move. Let me just I can then see. Um, so the voice of the left behind is extremely important. Even though they're not migrants, we don't want to ignore them. Um, and I mentioned, you know, families. So family networks are increasingly spatially um, extended, and maybe even globally extended. The third facet has to do with what we mean by a family and what we mean by a household. Increasingly, households can be split in, spread out in different parts of a country or even different parts of the world. And so migration becomes a disruptive force to a social structure, namely the family. 
and uh, Douglas or Michael Douglas, not the actress Michael Douglas, but the scholar Michael Douglas, um, has coined this term householding as a active process. So with those sort of theoretical structure in mind, um, I wanted to take you very quickly to uh, a particular project that I've been involved in that involves um, interviewing of 300 households, the same 300 households, uh, in 12 villages in two provinces in China, Sichuan and Anhui, that happen to be major sending provinces. And um, I don't know if there's a laser here, but probably not right here, yeah. So um, that's one of those sites, one of the 12 villages. It's here in this part of Anhui. And so in order to go there, you need to fly to Hefei and take a bus for a few hours and then uh, and then take one of those um, tricycle-turned taxi uh, called Bang Bang, I think, and it's very bumpy, uh, all the way to the village. <clears throat> um, so these pictures, these four pictures, show you a traditional house with a courtyard in the middle and a very simple, modest kitchen. And out of this kitchen, she was able to make a full meal, um, and I was uh, very grateful to be uh, hosted there. But then with migrant remittances, uh, villagers can build much bigger houses, like the one shown here. And this one, the one on the left, is a house that is going to be finished, but because they ran out of cash, so they couldn't quite complete the balcony. And I just thought that it was quite dangerous that they were standing there like that. But um, they want to show off, you know, they want to show to me that here, I've got the big house. But when you look, when you go into a house, you'd be surprised to find that there's very little furniture. Okay. So, interestingly, uh, it could be that, you know, they don't really have the cash, or that they don't need the furniture because most of the year they're not there. Okay. They're actually working out elsewhere. So the question is, I'm going to leave this question to you, maybe we have time to get around to answer the question, why? Do they build a house so big? So, I'm going to get back to this question. Okay, this is um, a lot of information, but I'm going to help you uh, focus on what I would like you to pay attention to. So this is like a biography of a household, in particular a biography of a husband and wife. Okay. And um, here's the wife, and here's the husband, and their respective ages, they happen to be the same age. And here's a biography of them from 1990 to the year 2009. Uh, it, shows them, it shows us where they are in those years, what they do. And so um, the wife at 22 was farming, the husband was farming, uh, next year the same, but then they had two children in the, in the meantime. And then the wife continued to stay in the village. The husband decided to go to Wuhan from Sichuan to work as a handyman, then Shanghai in the tool factory, uh, then went to Shanxi to work in animal husbandry. Now this person happened to have you know, some uh, expertise in, uh, in animal rearing. So he actually became a veterinarian and returned home because so many people were, um, have pigs, had pigs at that time. And also he returned because he returned in order to build a house. You know, after a few years of migrant work, 
he had the remittances and he could build a house. And although she is the wife who is staying in the village, uh, then one year the wife decided to go to a clothing factory to give it a try, but it didn't quite work out, so she returned the next year. See, then, then, then they were together in the village you know, for a few years. Uh, then the pigs in the village got infected, and so that actually means business, right, for the husband. So that's another incentive for, for him to stay there. And they had more money, so they installed a telephone and so on. But then, because so many villagers became migrants, they, they gave up pig rearing. And so that's the livelihood for the husband. So then he had to go outside to work again, uh, to Ningbo as construction. Now, by this time, by 2002, sorry, 2004, the children have already become teenagers. So there's, no, there's less need for both the husband and wife to stay home. And so now the wife joined the husband in Ningbo. And a few years later, the son, who's now 17, joined them to work in Ningbo. Again, now the latest information we had for this household was that they were planning to buy an apartment in town. So throughout the about 20 years, there's so many changes. Changes in location, changes in work, changes in division labor, um, changes in uh, the, you know, the type of work. And what I've done is use this, uh, these symbols. I stands for inside, O stands for outside. The first letter means wife, refers to the wife. The second letter refers to the husband. So in the beginning, it was inside, inside, became inside, outside, and you know, there have been some changes. The, wife, the husband came back, so the inside, inside again. Eventually, it's outside, outside. Now, this is just one household. I have information for 300 households. Okay. But just looking at this household, I think it's quite clear that this is not just migrating from one point to another. And it's also not just one kind of work. It can be different kinds of work in different locations by different members of the household. Such is the fluid, fluidity and the flexibility and the multi-locality of Chinese rural households today. Okay, so some of the issues left behind children. How many people have watched this documentary? last train home. I highly recommend it. It's on Netflix. So you can, um, you can watch it through that. Estimate, estimation is that there are about 60 million left behind children in China. This, is, this story is about a couple who went to Guangzhou to work, left, leaving behind a uh, daughter and a son. And as a result of the splitting of the household, the relations between the parents and the children uh, have been quite strained. And to the extent that the daughter actually, uh, to the disappointment of the parents, decided to become a migrant worker herself. Okay. Um, so she's clearly unhappy. Now, there's another story, a sad one, um, that in 2013, about the drowning of three children. They were left behind by their parents, watched by, taken care of by the grandma, and they were just playing in the village, and they went into the pond, and they were drowned, all three of them. Um, okay, there's also left behind elderly. This, these, some of these pictures were quite recent. Um, this was from Sichuan. That uh, I don't know if you can see it well, but here's a picture of a, um, a teenager 
daughter lived in a very big house by, him, by herself and her grandma. So I had the opportunity of interviewing her, um, and when we talked about her dad, her parents, she burst into tears, but because she felt very lonely. And then her grandma uh, here, they just I, we just ran into them, the, the grandparents, on their way back to the village from the market. So estimation is 20 million left behind elderly. Okay, so this is this law that was passed in 2013 July. This applied to the entire um, country, not just to the rural areas. But I thought this was a very meaningful law. The law has to do with um, children being required to visit their parents from time to time. Okay. So July 1st, that law was passed in China. July 2nd, this woman, this elderly woman, took her daughter and son-in-law to court the next day. Okay. And uh, the court then ordered because they were not you know, um, visiting her. And so the law, the court ordered her son and daughter-in-law, and son, I mean, her daughter and son-in-law, excuse me, to visit her at least once every two months, and during at least two public holidays every year. Okay. So it's it's saying something about social change in China that you need a law like that in order for the for the children to visit their parents. I think it's a very good law and should be um, should be passed in every country in the world. Okay, that, uh, but some parents would take their children to the migrant um, destination, migrant location, and so there are also migrant children. Um, several summers ago, I took some of my students to visit the Dandelion Migrant Children's School outside of Beijing, and they volunteer for a day there. Uh, the estimate that we have is 30 million migrant children in China today. So a lot of social issues, and I would leave you with these photographs, not taken by me, but by a professional photographer who went to different parts in China. The top two pictures show uh, the left-behind elderly and the empty chairs. Those chairs would have been filled if everybody stayed in the village, but of course they have left um, to work. The bottom two pictures show a migrant worker and pictures of whom they left behind in the village. So again, um, just go back to the three surfaces that I um, highlighted earlier, that translocality, the voice of the left behind, and split households are as important as the traditional framework of migration to understand population movement today. Before I end, I promise that we're going to go back to this question. Why do the villages in China build houses that are so big? I know this is a, not a lecture, but if somebody from the audience has an answer to that question, I would love to hear your answer. Yeah. Uh, because they can get compensation from the government if, <laughs> <laughs> if the houses were dismantled according uh, to the cost of the organization. Yeah, there's some truth to that, but um, you have to wait. Yeah. You have to. <laughs> See if that would ever take place. Yes? Maybe they plan to go back in the future. Yeah, there's a plan B, right? You know, you, you never know because migrant work is not stable. Um, you're not really going to rise um, 
to the top of the company as a migrant worker, so you need to have some security back home. But there is a probably more, yeah. So you look at the Smiths and the Joneses next door, they all have built houses as big, so you want to do that too. There is a gendered explanation. Yeah? Um, I guess maybe there are two reasons. The first one could be um, the loss of agricultural land. The conversation you can get from government is different mm -hmm. from the land you lost in the country. The second one, I think, is a cultural aspect. I've seen houses that are built so close to each other that you can touch the other house because they just want to build as big as possible. That's a practical uh, aspect. And that is, if you have a son, you want him to get married, uh, the prospective brides would come and meet the son, but actually they would come to meet the house because the bigger the house, the more marriageable the son is. And still the kids in China. Thank you very much. Okay, next on my list is Vernon Henderson. Well, it's uh, this is a fun day. It's nice to be here. I'm going to uh, give a. a particular uh, perspective on urbanization and one aspect of it. Uh, it's a narrow perspective, but I think it's a very important one. So uh, I'll, you can see what you, what you think of it. So um, China's had, as you know, enormous economic achievements over the last uh, 30 years, 35 years, with this enormous uh, growth rate in GDP and uh, rapidly rising standards of living for basically everybody, although you know a lot of disparities that we'll talk about. Um, but there are slower aspects of uh, the reform that our people worry about and write about, and these really deal with what economists call factor markets. So this is in the labor market with migration type restrictions, uh, implicit or explicit, uh, really what Professor Pham was talking about to some degree, and behind that. Um, capital market uh, distortions, uh, capital market dominated by the state, which I'm going to talk about today, and then the fiscal resources of non-political cities, of the non-provincial level and the, the uh, non-provincial capital cities. So these have created, and many of us think, a, a major uh, problem that um, is common to, in developing countries, and that's bias in the allocation of resources, particularly capital and public infrastructure, towards political cities as opposed to secondary cities and, and um, less favored cities. And the obvious question is, well, kind of, so what? And that's what we're going to try and talk about today. So, um, so the, uh, there's a literature on this uh, based on looking at other countries, Brazil, Indonesia, uh, historically. Um, if we're thinking about, say, capital market favoritism, by that I mean that firms in a particular city have easier access to credit, cheaper credit, um, and can, you know, in that sense, borrow and get uh, get more capital. Um, that that draws firms into city because they want uh, cheaper credit. 
that creates jobs uh, to, for people to match that cheap capital, and then that draws migrants into the city. So from the city's point of view, they got this cheap capital, that's great. They get this migrant labor force, that's great too, but there's a downside, which these people also live in the city. So um, if they live in the city, that puts pressure on the roads, it puts pressure on the environment, uh, you have more congestion, higher cost of living, a degradation of the environment. And so in some sense, you have this favoritism, but if migration's relatively free, uh, then that leads to uh, dissipation of those benefits by cities, in essence, becoming oversized and rather unpleasant places to live. Or, of course, if you're the local government, you can try to restrict migration into your city, which is a policy that has occurred in other countries, but in a, a less um, explicit fashion than in China. So, um, I apologize for the word you here, I got kind of over-enthusiastic. So, the, kind of the, the dilemma here for China is, does it want to um, end this favoritism? Is that at all on the table in both the capital market and the fiscal markets? So, as to, in some sense, reduce the growth potential of some of these biggest cities, like Beijing, Shanghai, Tianjin, um, and divert in some sense, resources to secondary cities, which are a natural home for industrial development. Um, if you did that, and you made it in some sense for capital reasons and fiscal reasons less attractive to, uh, to be in, in these cities, you could relax the, uh, the migration restrictions because you wouldn't, folks would be diverted more to secondary cities, and in some sense then increase social harmony, as it's called, right? And I think you know, in, in sort of, if you work through economic models of this, this suggests that would both uh, increase economic performance and would surely uh, reduce inequality. Or do you continue to restrain the population growth of uh, these biggest cities by making life unpleasant for, for migrants and in some sense continue to have your degree of inequality uh, growth? So we're going to talk about uh, these, these aspects. So I'm going to start with the labor market. Um, we know that, uh, that um, between 1978 and 2000, and obviously before 1978, the population movements in China were highly restricted through the hukou system. That even up until 2000, if you wanted to move legally, at least you had to obtain permissions from the place you were leaving and the place you were going to, and those, uh, those cost, uh, cost money, two or three months' wages. After 2000, it becomes easier to migrate, uh, in terms of the, the legal situation. However, um, migration is still a challenge. And you know, one phrase that's been given this, as, as particularly for movements in the bigger cities, is raising the door sill, making it more difficult to step over into the city. So you're not entitled to formal sector housing and jobs, uh, and restricted in your access to public services in the cities. You end up in, in a city like Beijing, in these urban villages or in dorms. Um, and uh, you also have the other aspect, it's difficult to sell off your agricultural holdings. Um, so one of the things that, uh, that Professor Fan talked about and, and we know about is the schooling situation for migrant uh, children. So the access, although there have been a lot of decrees passed and so on, it's still the case that the access of migrant children to state schools in big cities is, is restricted. And, um, and in fact, we have these sort of quasi-legal private schools that spring up that aren't of the best quality, 
Um, this is a recent number uh, for, for Guangdong province where about 80% of migrant children are in these sort of private, uh, private schools. Or you end up leaving the children behind and, and that's a problem that's been written about uh, extensively. So there is some access to state elementary schools, but then that dries up in particular at, at high school. You're supposed to go back to uh, where your hookah is to go to high school. So um, that makes it difficult for, for migrants to be in the city. These are just some pictures. This is a shot from uh, an urban village in northeast uh, Beijing of about 40,000 where you've got six migrants in a, uh, in a single room and all your facilities, your cooking, your bathroom, washing are all outside. Um, this is kind of the difference in access to, to social security and um, unemployment insurance, all these types of things that the urban workers have much higher uh, access than the migrant workers. Uh, this is, um, whoops, I'll get this to advance, yeah. This is um, uh, a graph taken from the World Bank. And this is, uh, it's got on the bottom axis the urbanization rate, but it's really just over time. So we're looking over time, and we plot two measures. One is the ratio of rural to urban income, uh, household income. And uh, the other is the Gini coefficient, a typical measure of inequality that uh, economists and sociologists, social scientists use. And what we see is pretty much over this whole time period since 1978, this really, really rapid increase in, in inequality. And in um, numbers that were done after this graph in, in uh, applying in the, you know, last year suggests that China's Gini is, uh, as it, is at about 60, which is amongst the top five or six countries in the world in terms of the degree of uh, inequality. And one worries that in the long term that's a social issue uh, that the country will have to address. Most countries at that degree of uh, inequality have some form of unrest that's, that's hard to deal with. Um, capital markets, uh, basic reforms were done in the 90s to create a banking system, but the banking system is, uh, is still uh, state-owned and state-influenced, and uh, the directors are appointed by the state and banks have uh, some limited degree of autonomy in, in how they do loans. We know that the bank, banking system favors uh, state-owned firms, that on average their rates of return on capital are lower, 40% uh, lower, 50% lower, implying that they get cheaper access to capital, they can overcapitalize and in fact drive down the returns that they earn. What's less well known is that if you look just, for example, at private firms and compare the returns in, say, Beijing and uh, Shanghai, Tianjin, with um, other private firms in other cities, say, in, in the coast, that uh, the returns are lower um, in these political cities, again, implying a cheaper cost of capital, about 35% lower on average. So here are just some graphs of the distribution of returns. This first graph refers to um, all private firms and then all state firms. All state firms, the distribution has shifted to the left. These numbers are all normalized, but it's implying a, a lower rate of return on capital, um, uh, certainly overall and for large parts of the distribution. Um, this is uh, less dramatic, but this is the difference on private returns uh, returns to capital for private firms in Beijing, Shanghai, and Tianjin versus private firms in other cities on the East Coast. 
And again, the distribution for Beijing, Shanghai, and Tianjin is shifted to the left with lower returns. Not so dramatic, but uh, definitely there. And then if we um, look at particular cities, uh, this is Shenzhen, kind of the poster child for rapid private development, uh, shifted out here to the right, high returns in Beijing and Tianjin shifted uh, far to the left with much lower returns and implied much uh, cheaper access to, uh, to capital. Um, so the idea is that this cheaper capital draws firms in. Uh, it's not just capital, of course, it's public infrastructure, investments, and, and a whole package. It draws firms in, and that draws migration uh, migrants in, despite uh, raising the door sill and trying to slow the migration rate. So what we're seeing in, uh, in Beijing and Shanghai here is this astronomical growth rate of the migrant population between 2000 and 2011 at 11 or 12 percent a year. I mean, this is like really, really rapid growth, and a growth rate of the city uh, that's about just under 4 percent a year. So despite, you know, the migration restrictions, you're still growing very fast because it is so attractive to be in, there, in those cities. Capital is cheap. Uh, the infrastructure investments are extremely high. Um, so the current policy is basically to favor these political cities, whether it's in capital markets or on the fiscal side. I haven't shown you graphs on that. And to, in some sense, maintain the degree of inequality by re restraining migrants, making it their life less pleasant, so making it more difficult for them to migrate to these bigger cities, um, uh, which potentially would have higher productivity for them. So, but the social issue by, of course, raising the door sill, you create within your city these two classes of citizens. Those who have access to public services, the state schools, can get a good education. Those whose kids have to go to underground schools or be left behind, uh, don't have social insurance, um, and are restricted, in some sense implicitly at least, uh, in where they can live. So um, the results are, you know, as I've said, this uh, huge degree of inequality. We worry about the long-term consequences of this. If you think of a lot of the growth in China over the last or substantial portion being based on industrialization, employing migrant workers, right? And the great thing about China, historically looking in the 80s and 90s when this was developing, compared to other developed countries or developing countries, is that you had a population that was literate and that could do reading and arithmetic. However, if you want to move to a higher income status, you need people who complete high school, uh, senior secondary school, and potentially then go into college. And you have this problem now of this whole generation of migrant children that are not well educated because it's difficult for them to access schools in, in the cities and resources in the rural area for education have, um, have fallen behind. So, um, and you have this problem, of course, of uh, this cities on the brink of, of serious overpopulation with very high cost of living and environmental conditions. Let me show if I can. So, you know, this is Beijing air quality, it's a cheap shot, but uh, I mean, I know people now who are professionals who, when they're going back to China and trying to think of what universities they're going to teach and where they're going to work, just say, I will not go to Beijing under any circumstances because I don't want to have kids and, and have this problem. Um, so the summary is, you know, you could try to level the playing field here across cities 
make access to the capital market more equal across cities, make the fiscal resources more evenly distributed and more efficiently distributed, um, and make non-political cities, therefore, better able to access capital, have fiscal resources, and make them more attractive places to live, which would take migration pressure off the biggest cities, and also create or help increase social harmony. But the problem is, if you free up migration, and you really had the agenda of social harmony up there forefront, and you were going to say, we're going to admit all the migrant children to state schools in the cities, and really do that in the big cities, they can go to secondary school in the big cities. Um, we're going to give them access to the mortgage market and to mortgage credit. We're going to uh, give them the social services and enroll them in social ser- service programs. If you really did that, then even more people would come to Beijing if Beijing is still a favored city. And you'd have then a horrific mess. So it's a, it's a dilemma. That's it. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, it's my third time to be here, uh, to be visit the uh, IRC. First time is in early 1990. Second time is early this uh, century. And uh, almost uh, every 10 years I've been here. <laughs> yeah. So I, I give uh, maybe the talk about organization in China is more generally. Uh, uh, <clears throat> Maybe firstly, I want to say how can we uh, analyze the urbanization issue in China. Uh, usually, uh, sometimes we use uh, why is uh, uh, the population, why is the people will go, and uh, the land issue, and the uh, financing issue, and also the industry. Uh, e- economic uh, and uh, e- economic development and industry. The other very important is uh, transportation and uh, uh, resources and the environmental. Finally, uh, is uh, some uh, something like governance. And uh, so I think uh, uh, I got this book last year. Uh, maybe uh, I think this is the last book from the, uh, Sir Peter Ho. This book is uh, give a lot of uh, a very good uh, uh, sense to see the what China uh, organization will face uh, in the future, uh, because they talk about uh, uh, organization issue uh, in Europe. Uh, so I think maybe it also supports uh, our the uh, framework. Uh, <clears throat> last year. So last year, uh, China uh, government, central government issued a, a plan for the new type of organization uh, in China uh, from the 2014 to 2020. Uh, that is also we talk, uh, uh, answer several questions, like uh, I mentioned before. Uh, uh, for example, for the population, maybe it's a more free uh, mobility of the population. And the land issue is uh, uh, how can 
intensively and uh, accommodate the utilization of land for the city. And uh, also the financial issue, industrial, uh, transportation, and the environmental and uh, uh, governance. <coughs> so the time is limited, so I just uh, show uh, this uh, 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 the topic. Uh, last year, uh, the, our center, the Development Research Center, uh, worked with the uh, World Bank, uh, published a book. Uh, uh, <coughs> the name is, uh, sorry. Yeah,我可以。我可以。我可以。我可以。我可以。我可以。我可以。我可以。我可以。我可以。我可以。我可以。我可以。我可以。我可以。我可以。我可以。我可以。我可以。我可以。我可以。我可以。我可以。我可以
organization rate is uh, uh, mainly is uh, mm, highest. <coughs> and uh, <coughs> uh, this just shows the, 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 our target. We think maybe uh, in the next five plan, <coughs> the urbanization still is one of the driving force for the economic and the social development. And uh, <coughs> uh, the China, uh, World Bank and the DRC the, uh, published the book about the organization. Its uh, name is Towards the More Efficient, Inclusive, and a Sustainable Organization. Uh, <coughs> maybe from the Dutch uh, uh, book also uh, mentioned is uh, maybe to, uh, to the 2020, the organization rate can be reached uh, 60%. But uh, uh, we also face a lot of uh, uh, challenge uh, in the future. One is uh, uh, the organization rate, uh, we think maybe it's uh, now is uh, almost 54%. But uh, we see the quality of the organization still uh, low. One is uh, uh, maybe just uh, <coughs> because uh, uh, we see the uh, organization rate uh, by the hukou or organization by the uh, uh, permanent resident. Uh, the, 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 de the different de definition, there is a <coughs> big gap. Um, <coughs> uh, <coughs> the other, uh, the quality, we think maybe <coughs> uh, <coughs> there is a lot of uh, uh, village in, within the city, and uh, uh, <coughs> in the that area, uh, uh, <coughs> uh, I think maybe uh, also the slums area in the uh, industry and the mining region, and uh, 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 I think that is a problem. The other problem is uh, some small town and uh, uh, the, uh, the, the infrastructure uh, is very weak, and also the function is also uh, have the problem. Uh, <clears throat> so the, the other uh, problem uh, we face is uh, uh, unreasonable structure of a scale of organization. Uh, I'm sorry this uh, table is in Chinese, but I think maybe that table also, I think several years ago, the Professor Henderson also showed the, uh, almost the, uh, similar result. Is, uh, 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 compare with uh, uh, European country, uh, United States uh, and uh, Japan, uh, the people uh, live in the uh, uh, one million uh, population uh, city. The share in the total uh, uh, population, uh, urban population, uh, maybe uh, in China still very low. Uh, in China, only the 21 percent, and uh, <coughs> and uh, no, yeah, and uh, for the compare with the U United States and also uh, with Japan, uh, China relatively low. <coughs> the other the problem is. Uh, um, Uh, we think maybe uh, <coughs> uh, the urban uh, cluster, sometimes we call the uh, urban uh, groups, uh, maybe just uh, be, uh, development 
at beginning uh, level. I think maybe <coughs> uh, in, in China, the level of urban agglomeration is uh, also relatively low. The urbanization uh, of China is in the state of agglomeration of population and the industry. Uh, so I think maybe uh, that is uh, uh, <coughs> that is show our the uh, the uh, structure for uh, scale for organization still have some problem. The other uh, problem is uh, <coughs> the urban uh, regional layout and the urban internal uh, spatial location have a problem. There is uh, too many. Uh, too small uh, urban number, but it's too large of a number of uh, the, the town and the villages. And the too uh, small scale of uh, institutional town in the uh, micro uh, urban. And uh, <coughs> uh, the other is uh, uh, the some uh, big city also have a lot of problem uh, we call the uh, sickness of uh, cities. Uh, the, uh, <coughs> the other problem is we face is uh, uh, there is a, a segregation of the construction of urban and rural uh, area. Uh, there is a, we call the dual structure still is very uh, seriously. And the infrastructure of residential area, the basic public services and the social security have not been benefited to the urban and rural population universally and equally. And for the economic and the ecological aspect, I think there is also a lot of problem. For example, the cost, the raising the cost of population uh, in China cities. And uh, for the land use, it also is not uh, is, uh, quite uh, inefficient. Uh, the World Bank report also shows this one. The land use, uh, if you uh, compare Guangzhou with uh, Seoul, uh, maybe they say that Guangzhou could be accommodate uh, 4 million <coughs> uh, more people if uh, it has a sore density uh, <coughs> profile. And uh, the transportation also has a problem, uh, like uh, <coughs> the many cities have uh, some transportation congestions, uh, especially in Beijing and uh, some larger cities. I think maybe uh, uh, in the future we should uh, pay pay more attention to uh, several issues. One is a focus on the uh, reduction of regional uh, uh, disparity through the utilization of urbanization uh, process. <clears throat> the other is uh, take uh, regard to the phenomena of urban uh, poverty. I think uh, so far in China, the, for the when we talk about poverty, maybe uh, most is uh, in the rural area, but in the urban area, uh, I think since uh, uh, last time we worked with uh, uh, Ata Hussain, uh, I think maybe uh, have uh, uh, pay attention from the uh, mid, uh, 
Minjungbu, but I think it's still not enough. The third one is relax the financial bottleneck of the city government in process of organization. That maybe is a very big challenge. The other is coordinate for process of organization of the campaign of the social new rural construction. That is a Chinese term. I think maybe the last one is uh, urban clusters. Maybe so far, I think when uh, uh, we talk about big city and small city, maybe it's very important to uh, develop the urban cluster. So how can we realize the economic pulling role of uh, urban, urban cluster is uh, uh, very important for the urbanization process in the future. Thank you very much. about 20 minutes for discussion and comments. We've had three very illuminating presentations on various aspects of urbanization in China. Let me make just a few remarks before I open it to the floor. First is that these Chinese cities are actually, when we compare with other cities, are has some very peculiar particular characteristics. The first thing is rural and urban are actually arbitrary distinctions in China. It basically depends on the government actually uh, labeling that area as urban or labeling some area as rural. If urban means very high population density and dependence on non-farming activities as sources of income, urbanization rate is much higher in China. Many of the rural counties in China are actually as densely populated as peri-urban localities in, in Europe and United States and maybe as much as 90% of their income may be coming from non-farming activities. The second thing is urban and rural distinction in China is not a distinction between cities and outside because each Chinese city actually contains within its boundaries a rural hinterland. So in fact, urban-rural distinction runs through the cities rather than across the cities. So. Let me also mention something very strange about China, which I discovered while studying urbanization in China. China's urbanization rate, as is officially measured, has risen very fast since the turn of the century. But since 1997, number of cities and towns in China has, in fact, slightly fallen rather or remained constant. The reason is very strange. That is, if you have growing urbanization rate, you would expect the emergence of new towns. This is entirely due to government labeling, because in 1997, the State Council decided China has too many cities and is not going to create any more cities. So as a result, cities have grown in a very strange way because they cannot create new cities. The third aspect I'd like to mention, that is urbanization, we mean two things that is growth in people, uh, population living in urban areas, or people who can be called urban. And second is expansion of town and city. Well, we have discussed the hukou system, which affects really the rebranding re, uh, of people from rural to urban, and the barrier it creates urbanization. I should also maintain 
that urban population in China is not a very clearly defined entity. That is, until 2000, every population census in China used a different definition of urban population. So it's something very fluid and shifting. So even now, if you look at the statistics, you can define urban in many different ways. So if you look at the people with urban hukou or fenungye hukou, it's only 35% of the population. So while urbanization rate is 52, if you look in terms of territory, so-called urban districts and rural counties, urban districts actually occupy a very, uh, almost has just over 20% of the, the city population. So there are problems. So if you look at, in, in terms of digital maps, so I would say that look up the different uh, gap in the built-up areas, China's urbanization rate comes out something like in the 60s, almost 70%. So what, by that what I want to emphasize is that urban rural for policy purposes have to be defined differently than is done officially. That is, problems which are characteristic of urban settlements are also found in rural areas. So rural areas do not constitute a different world from urban areas. First final remark before I open it to the discussion is a big problem of finances in Chinese cities. So one thing which profoundly affects urbanization process in China is the public ownership of land and the division of public ownership into collective ownership and state ownership. So a very curious feature of China is that although China is short of cultivable land, the government always tries to protect cultivable land. If you look at between 1990 and 2010, the built-up area in China has increased 3.5 times, while the population, as whatever you define, is actually increases something just over two, twice. So there is a huge gap between rate of growth of built-up areas and of population. So I'll just mention one thing, is that the, the way public ownership of land is defined is actually gives very special economic incentives to cities to actually turn rural land into urban land. And so there is an economic incentive to expand size of cities, which is contrary to Chinese government policy of preserving the cultivable land. So these with few remarks, I open the floor to discussion and comment. Please keep your remarks or questions instead of brief so we can give as many people a chance as possible. Thank you. Any questions or comments? Okay, go ahead. Yeah, okay. One question for Professor Spahn is that um, what is your solution to this left behind issues? And then I have also one question for Professor Henderson is that what would be your measures to overturn this feudalism on cities? So we'll take several questions at one time and then any more? We don't have any ready volunteer now. Cindy, would you like to take up the first Sure. If I um, understood it correctly, um, your question was, what was this, what can be solutions for the left behind? Okay. 
Um, maybe I should try to rephrase your questions um, a little differently because um, I think it's perhaps a um, you know there's an assumption that the left behind people being left behind is a problem. And I actually wanted to uh, problematize that thinking because it may not be a problem. And in fact, um, the, some of the surveys that have been done to migrants, um, asking them, you know, how many of you do want to settle down in cities? I mean, you would think that everybody does. And in fact, that's not the case. In fact, many surveys have revealed that um, it could be that 50% of the respondents say, yes, I would like to stay in the city for good. But uh, if you ask the questions, um, including some conditions, such, such as, uh, if you have to give up your farmland in the countryside, would you like to stay in the city? Then the percentage of those who answers yes drops dramatically to maybe less than one-third. So... Um, I think the migrants are not stupid. They do have a calculus. That means the reason why they leave the countryside to the city is because there's wage to be earned. But um, the countryside is not something that should be given up easily because there's farmland, there's house, there's a social network, there's community. So, in fact, the left behind is left behind to, in a sense, guard the, the, the security, um, both social and economic and, and so on. So, I'm sorry, I know you asked a very simple question and I, I gave you a very complicated answer. Um, so, I, I, I don't think that you know, moving all the left behind to the city is actually a very good thing. And therefore, in that sense, I think the problem it's more um, how do we guarantee uh, a stable livelihood for rural Chinese, both in the countryside and the city, if, the, if there's sustained live livelihood opportunities for rural Chinese, um, then I, I think that in itself would solve the left behind problem. <coughs> um, not, yeah. So uh, the... Um, I think the question was, how would you overcome favoritism? And uh, I guess there are a lot of reforms out there that people talk about, um, in particular form of the capital market, right? That to make it, the banking system uh, more open to, uh, to probably remove it uh, in stages out of state control and to privatize it so that it's not driven by political objectives. And, uh, and you know, by, uh, be a target of, of policy. The uh, the other aspect would be the fiscal resources. I don't. I'm not such an expert on that. But uh, you know, China's uh, cities are governed in a hierarchy with provincial level cities, provincial capital, um, ordinary prefecture level cities, and then the distinction between cities and municipalities. And in that hierarchy, the people at the top have more resources, more ability to tax, more ability to finance and people further down or counties further down and entities and prefectures further down don't have that same ability and you would like to equalize that. In, in most countries we don't have a hierarchy of cities in a sense of an administrative hierarchy. We have an economic hierarchy but in China it's an administrative hierarchy 
and that makes sort of having a level playing field for cities to compete. And we heard this morning even from uh, Lord Turner about competition, which is these cities are in. It places cities that are down in the hierarchy at a disadvantage because they're not operating with the same rules. Um, I wanted to make one other comment, which was uh, really related to the first question, and maybe it's not fair to comment on it. We heard this morning about, you know, we, the perception has been for decades that there's a, an excess of foreign population in China. We know that aging is, uh, is partly solving that, but I was struck even by the numbers that, that were shown in the talk early this morning that there's still, for people under age 50, there's still like 200 million people in, the, in what I think he was trying to say was the farm sector. And, uh, you know, you probably need, ultimately, if you modernize and your agriculture to the same extent that you have your industry, you 50 million, 70 million, there's still an excess of population. And the migrants who are moving to cities, I think, and ultimately, excuse me, in the long term are, are going to stay. But that's, of course, a, a subject of debate. Right. Any more? Yeah, okay, go ahead. Thank you for your brilliant lecture. Uh, actually, I have uh, several questions, uh, like sequential questions. And uh, uh, from your lecture, I can see some paradox. Uh, the first one I, uh, I have is that uh, I can see from the Chinese of nation model that one salient uh, feature is that it spires against the population from rural to urban. So. Um, this is a bias mostly created by the hukou system, as you mentioned. But why China still keep the system while it is seems obviously it is a hidden barrier? Uh, this is the first uh, paradox for me. And the second one is uh, as uh, Professor uh, Li Shantong has mentioned that uh, organization is um, good for reducing the regional disparity. But actually, uh, I think that organization is primarily a result uh, of growth, not not because of, not not like in compulsory way. Uh, like you, ha um, it seems that you have uh, reversed the cause and effect. Like, is the organization cause growth or is the growth cause organization? Yeah. Uh, and the third question is that uh, Professor Hudson mentioned that the two features of population, one is the population in the city and the other is the expansion of the city. But uh, in the text of the, in the context of the country where cities apparently cannot support even the migrant right now, so why do China uh, advocate this new organization at this time because I think it's weird uh, it, it just may cause a lot of more problems like traffic congestion and more than the environmental pollution yeah thank you so perhaps I'll come okay. uh, perhaps I'll comment on the question about Hukou system um, again I think it's pretty simplistic to think about hukou system as just something 
that can be abolished. And that, that's the root of the problem. Um, that's how it has been um, portrayed in the Western media. Um, but I think it's much more complicated than that because um, in large cities like Beijing and Shanghai and so on, it's very, very difficult to get a local hukou. Okay? So it's a very much an urban management uh, tool that there's, there's something to control, to, to help them manage you know, the urban infrastructure, employment, and, and so on and so forth. But look at the middle-sized middle, uh, cities and small cities. Many of them actually have already opened up the hukou, and they want to invite people to apply for their uh, respective hukou because that means uh, labor power, investment, and so on and so forth. But that doesn't necessarily mean that people are applying for the hukou there. In fact, agricultural hukou is becoming um, something that people really, really want. And some migrants actually regret they've applied for urban hukou elsewhere because by doing that, they've given up the agricultural hukou and thus entitlement to farmland and so on and so forth. So um, I think it's really very much uh, an issue about entitlement to resources. It's very much an issue of vested interests. You know, it's very difficult for anyone to, to, both urban and rural, to think about sharing their entitled um, and the entitlement to resources to to other people. So, um, it's I guess I, I just conclude by saying that um, it's not something that can be abolished easily, and abolishing it, it's not going to solve all the problems in urban and rural China. That that's not to say that I'm a, I'm a fan of Hukou, but it's just. <laughs> um, all right. Uh, um, I, urbanization does not cause growth. Uh, it's simple. We, we know that around the world. If you urbanize, per se, if you somehow force urbanization, that doesn't suddenly bring you these great benefits. Uh, growth causes urbanization. China has grown enormously. It's industrialized. That's the force behind uh, urbanization. That said, I, I think that China can support a lot more urbanization. I, I don't see why not. It's continuing to grow, and uh, you're evolving in a service economy, a business service economy that's going to expand over the next years, and that's going to support more population growth. I think the issue is where the migrants are going, and again, uh, thinking of trying to level the playing field across cities and watching industry move out of the main cities into uh, transport corridors and then into rural counties um, is a big part of what's going on right now. And um, those become secondary destinations for where migrants can, can go. I think maybe uh, <clears throat> when we talk about the hukou, uh, my personal opinion is uh, hukou uh, in English is reservation. It's uh, just uh, the management to show uh, who uh, located uh, in the where and uh, what is the work employment. That's all. But I think in, since 1950, uh, hukou always link with something in shortage. For example, in 1950 and 1960, uh, even 1980, the hukou link with Liangpia, uh, 
the food stamps because at that time the food is in shortage. But I think in the early 1990, the food is not uh, in shortage. I think maybe just delink. So far, I think the problem is uh, it's not hukou. The problem is uh, the other uh, uh, some uh, institution uh, uh, how to say or some uh, uh, for example the public uh, goods. So far, the pub, uh, distribution of public goods is uh, linked with hukou. It's, uh, it's not a hukou problem. I think the problem is the uh, public goods and uh, also the land. I think maybe. Uh, so the whole co reform is not uh, just a change uh, to give the people uh, some uh, some uh, some call. I think the problem is uh, how can we reform to the financial system and uh, the land reform. I think maybe that is more important. So far, like uh, uh, Professor mentioned, when they ask uh, some uh, uh, farmers. Uh, if uh, they ask them if you can keep the uh, urban hukou and uh, you uh, give up the land, maybe one third, maybe say no. Uh, maybe more. I think maybe especially in the, uh, the near the big city, I think maybe more. Maybe it's a, uh, uh, so I think the problem is not only reform on the hukou. I think the problem is more is dealing with hukou with other something. But the problem recently, since maybe this century, more and more things is linked with hukou. Like if you buy the house, if you should have the hukou. If you exam enter the university, you have the maybe different hukou have different the. Uh, yeah, so I think that the problem is not Hukou uh, itself. Uh, <clears throat> the other is uh, uh, maybe, uh, I think maybe in China, uh, there may be uh, industry and economic uh, development uh, <clears throat> is very important. The, uh, the urbanization just result of the industrialization and uh, uh, the, <clears throat> the productivity uh, improvement in the agriculture. <clears throat> so I think uh, the urbanization uh, maybe can provide uh, uh, some uh, uh, e efficiency improvements through the agglomeration and uh, the labor uh, transformation from the low productivity sector to the low high productivity productive sector. But I think real uh, the uh, driving force is uh, industrialization. <clears throat> and uh, urban uh, urbanization or maybe urban governments just provide some uh, uh, basic needs and uh, improve the infrastructure uh, to, uh, to adapt the people from rural to urban. Uh, urban Urbanization itself is not some some force. I think the real driving force is uh, uh, industrialization and uh, uh, improvement of the productivity. Yeah. All right. Thank you very much. And just to support what's being said about Fukuoka in 2007, uh, Shijie Zhuang and Zhang Zhou 
decided to change all non-agriculture hookah into non-agriculture hookah without realizing what its effect would be and very soon they had to reverse the policy because of the fiscal relation. One important thing which is done in, the, in various reports is the subsidy per urban inhabitant is much higher than subsidy per rural inhabitant. So if you convert an urban uh, rural hookah into urban hookah, you also have to uh, undertake uh, how to finance this extra subsidy and that's one of the big, big problems in China. So with this, I want to end the session and thank the speakers for...